Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Black Brew. Did you like my singing, Josh? I did. <laughs> okay, I'm Aaron. And I'm Josh. Oh, you sound like you're congested. <laughs> oh, I am. And we are your co-hosts. So today we have some very good topics for you. First, we're going to be talking about critical race theory and the 1619 Project because right now everyone is freaking out about critical race theory and the 1619 Project. And then secondly, we're going to be talking about Pride since this is Pride Month. But first, Josh. Mm-hmm. Let's get into some political tea. Shall we? All right. Now, the 1619 Project and critical race theory are two separate things, but both of them have been coming under attack simultaneously by conservatives, by uh, just people who, I, I don't know, just people who I guess are not educated um, about what it actually is. So people are upset because they think critical race theory is being taught in their high schools that it's being used for diversity and inclusion training. People are saying that the 1619 Project has been taught in their class and it's rewriting history. It's getting people to hate America. It's trying to get people to hate white people. It's another form of racism itself. What do you have to say about critical race theory and or the 1619 Project? Me? What do I think? Yes, what do you think? So this is the thing. All those things they listed is not something that's directly taught through critical race theory. It is just byproducts of how people react to the truth. And some of them I don't find unreasonable because, one, schools are not teaching critical race theory. Not here in the South, for for certain. Critical race theory is not taught down here. I don't know why they act like it be. Um... It is just being lightly introduced into school curriculums as a framework from research. So it's not even directly being taught in schools. It's that research that goes into the information that goes in the textbooks have had that framework used on them for better understanding. To make people more racist, I I don't get that part. People already are racist. And it's... Somebody points to tackle. Um, it's a lot of empty arguments right there. One, people who are mad at white people already were mad at white people, and it did not require a race theory to help inspire that. It just re-helps justify it, and it is justified. Um, I don't know any other way that they – I don't know. They're not presenting a counter-argument. Well, it's – okay, so it's honestly not – a new thing like this has been around since the 70s like this is when it originated like critical race theory like originated in the 70s so i don't know i i don't know why just now it's starting to become a thing i think because of like blm and like the summer protests and more people began to kind of adopt it and because people i guess were using it for diversity and inclusion training which in my opinion is stupid and because the 1619 project was 
published and it was a thing, even though it's not critical race theory, that people were conflating those two things, which is how I guess how it became like more popularized and how people are talking about it now. But this stuff was around since the 70s, so it's not anything new. And I need, I need people to actually read research and documents describing how critical race theory is used. All critical race theory, I mean, there's probably more to it, but for the main root for people who are laymen who don't know about it, critical race theory is a framework. And the framework little, utilizes a certain system of documentation tools to make sure that we have a clear, concise, and authentic testimony of experiences and consequences Oh, okay. Experiences of people who are affected by race and racism. And so, like, for example, I did a research project a while back using LATCRIT theory, which is a subcategory of critical race theory. It focuses on racism via specifically the Latin American experience. The major points of that is one, acknowledging history in America and Western culture that where there were examples of racial mistreatment and misuse directed towards Latin Americans. And you can't argue against that. That literally happened. We have historical documents. This happened. And it's also taking note how frequent it happened and the patterns around when they decide to do that to this group. And then taking the testimonies of those living people and using that as data. And like qualitative data to help further explain exactly how race is impacting this group, how it's impeding this group, how it has hurt this group historically and contemporarily. There's nothing in its structure that is biased or could be argued as biased because they use actual real information. Well, I think people are saying it's biased because of 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 what it's doing so or or like what it says they they think that those things are biased so for example if someone says like like for example there are people who like we know that anti-racism is a good thing but just because we say anti-racism is a good thing that doesn't mean that other people are going to agree with it so like for example there are qualities i shouldn't even say quality there are like uh concepts within critical race theory that um, I feel like people disagree with. So like you you mentioned like uh, testimonies from people and uh, this, this kind of stuff and like storytelling and like, um, I can't remember what else. I think it's maybe like standpoint theory or um, something else, um, counter storytelling and stuff like that um, mm-hmm. is, is a very big important part. And it's like other like epistemological things that are important to critical race theory. Um, and uh, you said, uh, um, uh, and it also makes me think about the 1619 Project, which uh, if you don't know, Nicole Hannah-Jones was the creator of it, the founder of it. She is a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and she has won a Pulitzer Prize for her project, 1619 Project. Um, and she was denied tenure from the university that she graduated and got her degree in journalism from, even though she was named the Knight Chair in Investigative Reporting and Race at that school. 
and they rejected her because they were talking about the project not being having uh, um, it, it not having objectivity in in her in her project, which I thought was interesting. If we think about critical race theory and how it relies on storytelling and like standpoint theory and counter storytelling and like these kind of testimonial things. Um, people think that objectivity, I feel like when we, when we say objectivity, in my mind, when someone says this needs to be objective, what I, in my mind, I hear them saying, it needs to be white, Eurocentric, heteronormative, cis-normative. That's what I think. And like, but like, it's weird that like, when a black woman has a project, she has to be held to this like objectivity standard, but we never question objectivity of like white men. We don't. I'm like objectivity. What, what else? What are you? Are you asking that science only be done for the sake of science and it not have an applicable reason behind it? Like, why would I just collect the testimonies of an entire group of people about their experience of race without an object, like a true objective behind it? What what good what good is that research? Not all research is meant to be done just for the sake of it being done. Like in this case, it's necessary because we have we have the non-objective point of view of white society constantly and all the rest of our, like you said, our research, our history, our documentation, our anecdotal notes, they're all white perspective already. And no one's questioned, well, that's not that's not objective. Yeah, it's not. It has full on intentions, but you don't bat your eye at that, but you're gonna bat your eye a black person or a Hispanic person or an Asian person who is just as viable, valid reason to state their toast testimony, even if it contradicts the original testimony, I just, my head's swimming. I see. It, 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 their argument against it, to me, is illogical. Okay. It, uh, it feels reactionary. It, it's the whole, like, it's the whole if a black person says something because they feel like something's unfair, we react to it negatively just because a black person said something was unfair. Even if it was unfair. It, that, that's, that's just how the whole approach to critical race theory has been feeling lately. It's just reactionary. There's no real logic behind it. But then they're going to argue the reason why that we shouldn't be looking at it. And supposedly there isn't a, that it's not logical enough to use even though their reaction to it is not logical. I think that it's become such a problem is because of this, this kind of like performative justice. Um, because <clears throat> theory, it originated as this theory in like legal studies. And it still to the very much, the, the main concern about critical race theory is talking about race and power and its relationship to the law. Like that is what critical race theory is. And a lot of times people discover it when they're like in law school, that's primarily like where they teach it. And then sometimes depending on like your field of study, you might learn it like in a criminology class. Well, probably not, it depends on who's teaching it. If it's a white man, you're probably not learning about it um, unless he's talking negatively about it. Or you might learn it like maybe in like a political science class or something that's more like policy focused. But it's pretty much literally just about race, power and the law. So I'm very, but we have taken this whole new, like, because people want to talk about it in diversity and inclusion, they have conflated critical race theory with anti-racism, saying that they're the same thing. And so now people have used this 
this academic movement to like do diversity and inclusion training, which in all honesty, diversity and inclusion is races itself um, because it doesn't do anything to actually help people of color um, or any other marginalized group. Um, they centered around the idea of here's the things you can do to stop yourself from looking racist versus here's the things you can do to help support your black or indigenous coworkers or mm-hmm. peers. Yeah, I just the objective is to save the white man's tail. I just don't believe that they are teaching <laughs> a legal theory and a legal concept to second graders. No, I, I don't. I don't believe that. So, I mean, the sixteen nineteen project could, is probably taught to second graders, but the sixteen nineteen project is not a legal theory. It's just about the history of America, which is a totally separate, different thing, because people are accusing her of being a revisionist and trying to rewrite history. But don't you think history needs to be rewritten, Josh? I mean, yeah. Because it comes from their bias, assuming that the history we were taught was historically correct. And it's not. It's just American mythology. The belief that this white perspective is the truth and that the issues we had were minimal and that the people who are oppressed by these minimal issues are over-exaggerative. <clears throat> That's our history that we're taught. And it's more inappropriate than it is to try to include the opposing perspectives of the people who were hurt by it. I really, I, it like, look, like really, if we get to the root of all of this, there is no logical reasoning behind why society is pushing against any of this it's not rooted in logic it's rooted in exactly like i said earlier is a reaction it's a reactionary reason so what do you say say to white people who who get upset because they say that critical race theory says that racism exists in all actions all interactions every single day and that they by default as white people are racist well it comes from the way you know, the majority of our issues would not be occurring if concepts such as race, racism, whatnot, were not, if it just wasn't taught by white people through white people's perspective, we wouldn't be having this runaround because they try to take hold of the narrative and of the, the definitions of these words and these experiences. They've crafted definitions and concepts that are not reflective of reality, such as racism supposedly is any racial prejudice across the board. No, it's not. Racism is a system of power, and it's about race having power over another race and enacting a system of beliefs and decisions to resupport that belief that they are superior over that other race. That's it. And in this society, that is white people over everyone else because that's how our society is structured. No other group has amassed any remote social power to be able to counter that. Where uh, The only reason why we have equality is because, once again, we're having to appeal to that white power not necessarily we have gained power we're on equal standing we're having to appeal so there's still that power dynamic and let me see if i get my words together it's like the way they have defined race and racism makes it difficult for them to understand what has actually happened what is happening and so they they, we've defined it as individual acts that have individual moral value to it 
that says this individual has made this negative moral choice to harm a, to view another person as less. That's not it. That is the corner of the whole piece of paper. And because they've looked at it so narrowly and adding morality to it, they can't engage with the truth. Because now they're looking at it with the lens of this is a negative, positive, moral so, uh, interaction. And I'm like, no, we, we, we're not going to judge white people what, on what the racism as a moral topic because they can't help it that it's implanted in their culture and the way we interact and how the system forces them to interact with us. So what do you say to people, white people who, or honestly, any kind of people, because black people get upset about this too, about them saying that it encourages um it encourages to be more divided and separate because critical race theory does discuss like more radical views about like separation, separatism and like uh, reparations and like black nationalism and stuff like that. Well, I, I first and foremost think people who try to make that argument that this stuff is making things more divisive are ignorant and disillusioned or illusioned to the world they live in. Any division that is rising to the surface because of these topics already existed. It's not inspiring it. It already existed. It's just giving us the tools to actually say it. You can't get mad at us for demonstrating the division that was already there. And it comes with this illusionary belief that we had somehow dismantled the division already. I don't know a single black or white person that has truly felt like the division between our races have just disappeared. And if they do, it's because they live in an all white or all black community with mental interaction with the other. If you're mm-hmm. someone who is forced to interact with another racial group, particularly the racial group that has power, you you know that that division is still there, no matter how friendly, how lovely, how caring we are to each other. And it's not because it's not based on these individual anecdotal relationships we're having with people. It's based on the system and system beliefs and conditions that we're still all being forced to live in. And these preset ideas that people already have. The division is there we're just calling it out. But instead of instead of white people in the past wanting to truly dismantle it, they wanted to gloss over the issue and have the illusion that things are equal because it's easier. It's easier just to believe that it's a simple fixed issue and that just giving us the right to vote and and having the right to use the same water fountain somehow dismantled everything else that came with it. And People don't want to have to realize that they're not living in better times than their grandparents did. It's a fear that things have not gotten better. And the fear uh, for white people that they're going to have to work even more with something they don't understand. And I think it's scary for them. And this is coming from someone who was raised by white people. It's scary for them because they're having to realize they have power, but they didn't realize they were shooting off like a laser beam left and right. It's like something they can't see or understand, but they're gaining from it. And that's scary. And I get that. Like people who look at this from a moral standpoint don't want to hurt other people. And so if they had to acknowledge that this them existing as white and us having to exist as black is perpetuating the racist system that scares people because it makes them feel like innately that they're always just internally bad. But that's not what racism is. And we have to teach people that you have to dismantle the idea that this is a moral issue, but it is a state of being that we exist in. And the only way we can stop it is by acknowledging it first. And once we do that, we can all move forward together to get this shit done and over with. 
because yeah yeah I, um, yeah, yeah <laughs> um i i guess what what, it, what pisses me off the most about this is that this is like my field of study like i like i i study critical race theory that's like something that i'm getting my degree in and um and so it, it kind of makes me very angry that people like don't even read what's what is actually written about critical race theory but then they go out and they talk about it or they somehow are like trying to like cut funding from programs that teach critical race theory because that puts me in a position it's like well am i not going to have a job just because i teach critical race theory um and so since we have to end on this topic i do before we end i just want to say that these are people that if you are interested in studying and learning about critical race theory these are some people that you should read Derek bell patricia j williams kimberly crenshaw kamara phyllis jones ian Henny lopez cheryl harris or mari masuda um, those are all people who have contributed uh, so much. There are other people too, but like um, these are just people that I know that I've like looked into. Um, and I just think if you're going to talk about critical race theory, the least you could do is read the book that was written by the actual critical race theorists. Um, so we're going to move on to our next topic, which is pride month um there's it's not a really specific topic but as we know june is the month of pride um and since josh and i are both queer um we're both celebrating pride month um on our last podcast you did hear us talk about like kink at pride but like there is a bunch more to pride than just leather so like i thought we could use this time to talk about what pride means to both of us what we're looking forward to in pride this year what we enjoy about pride what we dislike about pride um you want to go first josh well i did a lot of talking in the last section so i'm gonna let you go oh okay okay um so for pride for me um is a very special time um it's like christmas but for gays um so that's why I like it because I get to spend time with all the other people who have gone through the same exact shit that I went through, which was, you know, dealing with homophobia and heteronormativity and cisnormativity and all that other shit that is just really annoying. Um, it's a time for me to be able to let my guard down and just be with people and not having to fear any kind of judgment. Um, except, well, let me rephrase that, any kind of judgment for being queer. Other kinds of judgment, yes, uh, but I'll get into that later. <laughs> um, I, I've been to several pride parades. I've loved all of them. Um, and I love that pride was started by um, trans women of color and sex workers and other people. And I love that pride was a protest and it was a riot. Um, and I hate that pride has become commercialized and corporatized and it's all about the money and the Benjamins now. Um, also, what I also like about Pride is um, is that it, it's not just, it, or at least it's not, in my mind, it's not supposed to. I guess since things can evolve and change over time, obviously, um, and how we celebrate different holidays can obviously change over time. And I would argue that pride definitely has changed over time. But for me, I don't, as much as I love to like throw my ass back to some like music and get drunk and fuck, um, I also <laughs> like to be knowledgeable about like the history of pride. And so I do take the time to like invest in learning more about my own communities. 
um, and taking time to talk about issues that I think are important in my communities, such as, for example, pride being totally inaccessible for disabled people, or that there is a bunch of sexism and racism and uh, classism in you know the gay community or the queer community. So um, yeah, I'm excited this year for Pride. I am, well, I'm not gonna tell you where I'm going because you might show up and kill me, but um, just know I will be celebrating Pride with some of my friends. Um, and um, uh, I hope that I, uh, have a lot of fun. Um, I don't know what else to say. Uh, I might have something to say when you reply, because I'm sure you have a lot to say. Oops. Sorry, um, my friend had to ask a question real quick, so I kind of kind of had to throw that real quick. Uh, what was that last bit, Aaron, that you had said? What was the last thing that you heard, Josh? You were talking about pride, how you want to be invested in understanding the history of it because there's more to it than just us enjoying it by being hedonistic and whatnot. <clears throat> oh, um, you know I have the memory of a fucking goldfish. Um, <laughs> oh, did, did, I just want to know, did you ask me a question? Because my friend was like, I need to go to the back door. I'm like, it's okay, go to the back door. And then you said something, I was like, oh shit, I missed what Aaron said. <laughs> oh, no, I was just asking what your, what, you, what, what was your opinion? It wasn't like a direct, it was just you saying it was your turn to talk. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry, folks. So, my opinion about pride, I think it goes back to what you're saying. I, I think, especially given light of our current issue with our youngest generation of queer folk, with the older generations and understanding what pride is, I, I, my opinion is before anyone celebrates pride, there's some definite things that we need to establish for ourselves. What do we want pride to be for ourselves? And how will you manifest that during this month for yourself? Then there's the question of what is this movement and this celebration for our community historically? And we definitely need to go back to our history and understand not just like what was going on, but how did people feel and live as queer people then? Being queer is completely different now than it was back in the 60s. We have a lot more terms. We have more niche experiences that are acknowledged. We have more identities that are being acknowledged. But with, with that, we need to go back and see what, what the world was like for them there. And I, I like to look at it in the same way that we look at ancient Greece. Time has passed. So technically, the culture of the 1960s, all the way back to the 1800s for queer folk, were their own cultures. What was that culture like? How did people identify them? What were their motivations? What was the major struggle points for them? How did they, as different people, come together, coalesce, and create a community that became a wall to protect each other from the, the ills of heteronormativity and just over in general sexism? And we need to, and I'm not saying that we all need to be well-researched historians on queer history, but we need to be somewhat knowledgeable and not just in facts and information, but on an empathetic level that it took humans suffering on levels that we have never experienced before as modern queer people to get us to where we are. I mean, like a major portion of pride is that entire two, one to two generations of queer people died just 
straight up died because of neglect, because of the aid crisis, because of American and European policies towards being queer. Entire sectors of people are not present who did the work for us um, to give their testimony, to give their side, to give their opinion on the community and to give their ideas towards what pride will and should not, uh, will, will and will not be in the future. And we need to humble ourselves at this time with that knowledge. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have been born in the year 1995, where things have begun to progress forward for us, and that we got to see an entire presidential candidate who supported, well, not candidate, but president, who supported LGBT rights actively and who pushed for it in Ooh. an environment, well, Obama. Mm, okay. Uh, there, there were some problems with it towards his earlier past, but he made a lot of changes for that time period. He did a lot of good and a lot of progress for the early 2000s. I mean, yeah, we have far more less ideas now, but that wasn't on the table at the time. For, for us, especially us who were growing up, it was the most liberal time of our lives. We got to see us finally win a major cornerstone battle, which was same-sex marriage is legal. Um, and it gave us a sense of like the world just utterly pushing forward. Then we also experienced Trump and it kind of started feeling like the world was pushing back. But with all that, um, there's just so much to take in at this time. So much history, so much contemporary experience. And I think we should definitely treat it with a little bit more than just a giant party. But as an extension of not only a liberation for ourselves, but a liberation for those who came before us who did not get to celebrate that liberation. I wonder if it's a giant party. Because, I okay, I saw a, a tweet yesterday um, that, that I retweeted. It was a drawing that someone had done. Um, it, was a, it, was, it was an iceberg. And on top of the iceberg, it was like a bunch of like Twinkie kind of white gay men who were like partying. And then at the under the water at the bottom of the iceberg were pretty much every other kind of, you know, queer person you can name, like disabled queer person, black, brown, you know, queer women, um, all these other different, you know, marginalized communities. Um, and it got me thinking that like, I, I feel like for a lot, for some people, it is a party because like the, the battle for them is pretty much kind of over to some extent. Like they, like they got marriage equality, um, you know, it, it depends, but for the most part, yes. Um, and that was pretty much a really big thing for them. Uh, and by them, you know who I'm talking about, that certain group of queer people where they don't yeah. experience racism, they don't experience sexism, they don't experience transphobia, they don't experience classism, they don't experience ableism. So. I mean, to some extent, I mean, if you have marriage equality and you are like, you don't suffer racism, you don't suffer sexism, you don't suffer any of these other forms of prejudice um, and systemic, you know, uh, oppressions. I mean, I, I feel like it might be a party for me too um, because I'm like, well, like, I, I don't have to worry about anything else. Like, I mean, there is still like, you know, general levels of like homophobia that they have to face. But like, I mean, for a lot of them, depending on how like femme they are, it really 
it's not in the, also depending on their location like for like I'm, I'm understanding like why it might be a party for them and why for some people it's like it, it's good to party but there's still things that affect me like I posted today and you commented today I was talking about it's 2021 and we're in Pride Month and Black gay men still don't have their own barber shops. Like, why is that? We, like, as Black gay men, we know that we are oppressed when we go to barber shops, but like, we don't have our own. And I found this app that was supposed, that was made in 2020, or they're trying to develop it. That's supposed to be the special app that's low key kind of like a, a Yelp version of like this thing that's supposed to like point you to like LGBT friendly barber shops in your area. Yeah, it's like a rainbow Yelp. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, okay, that probably only works in, like, New York City or, like, L.A. or something. Like, it's not going to work in, like, okay. you know, like Alabama, because, <laughs> I mean, we only have, like, you know, like, one or two or whatever. So, I mean, and I'm also like, well, why do I even have to have that app? Like, why is it necessary for me to have? And I'm thinking to myself, that's something that is unique to my experience, that um, that, you know, the people who are out here partying only during Pride may not even have to even worry about. And then the, it's like, there are people who, even if they wanted to party, they can't even party because they can't even get access to all of the events. So, you know, yeah. I understand why it may be a party for them, but I is not a party for some of us, some of us for other reasons all the time. It must be nice to have their own war fought and one about the rest, rest of the struggles, and you know, it kind of reflects. It kind of reflects the lack of cohesion that the community has, and the fact that in the past, um, the past gay men, they would have they they would have not have seen this battle done until they saw their trans sisters and brothers. And they them there. Well, they didn't have they them theirs at the time. They didn't have the words for it. Um, Non-binary folk, um, like they would, they they would have not seen the battle done because in the past they had to work side by side with these groups to ensure they just got the little bit that they were going for. But we became so scattered, and it's kind of like a moment where the gay community or queer community scattered and then had to regroup itself and that scatter was clearly because AIDS epidemic but when it regrouped which only affected or for the most part only affected certain groups of people mm-hmm. and the people and the people who even though they weren't like the the majority when they were affected by it they had the resources to deal with <laughs> it yeah and like when we regrouped, we didn't see, it's like we lost that time with each other. We lost that connection. And the community knew that we were all supposed to be together, but we didn't have strong personal bonds with these different sectors of the queer community. Now, for me, it's different because I'm, I, I'm actively trying, I actively try to connect to other parts of our queer community because I, it's kind of like the old, you know, the old term, they're family. And that's how the queer community saw each other. They were family. And I see so many people, you know, my trans family, my uh, lesbian family, my bisexual, pansexual, polysexual, these, I see these people as part of my family. So their suffering is still my suffering. And I don't feel like for me, the battle is done. 
But for these privileged groups, we're just going to say it <coughs> white, cis, <coughs> gay men. Um, they find themselves in communities and places where they don't have to rely on making those connections with the other parts of the group. And so quite literally for them, the battle is done and won. Mm-hmm. It's over. Like, yeah, that's bad for them, but they don't have, per- not all of them, and I'm not going to say this is all of them, but as a group, they don't have full personal connection or try to develop full personal connection with the rest of the community. And that is definitely why gay men are hated in our community because, because they were the forefront and they were the picture boys for the rest of us. Um, and the, for the movements, it became very obvious to the rest of the branches of the group that they were getting left in the dust and only being used. It's so weird it's so weird that like the white gays are like the poster child for like queerness and they literally do the least like in all honesty it's the lesbians and trans people who are leading the way but like lesbians get no respect they get they get no recognition at all and they're the ones who they're like the people who lead the way but for some reason timmy the twink he he's the poster child mm-hmm it's it's kind of baffling because, I mean, if we just overview a lot of our social movements, a lot of them were moved by women or people who are in proximity to femininity and womanhood. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Even in, for Black Lives Matter, too. And that is historical. Like, yeah. I would argue it's been historical even outside of America. Like, for some reason, we have and well, I, I can I can go into a long sociological explanation. A lot of it roots in the way we deal with conflict. Males are taught to redo, or men are taught to redo. Women are taught to work it out and to work out the details in diplomacy. And because of that, because of that, we have unfairly put the weight on any uh, of diplomacy and truly working issues out on anyone that is in proximity to the idea of femininity, femininehood, and womanhood. And I, I, this is completely unfair. I mean, and it's the whole reason the patriarchy exists. Maleness and masculinity is what causes conflict and wars and all of that stuff. They're the ones, they, I mean, they created everything and they structured everything. So, I mean, and then we know that all of these structures and creations that lead to conflict and prejudice and discrimination and war and d- damage and all of this stuff, like, I mean, people always say like, well, what would the world be like if women ran the world? It'd be a very different world. Yeah. It'd be a very different world because they are taught with different values in our society. And those values are arguably more important in a society than what we keep touting as important on the masculinity side. I really don't give two shits if you can build a house, George. I really don't. Anyone can make a lean-to on the side of a building. It's like, can you make an interconnected connection in this community where no one starves because you have good diplomacy skills? That's what we really need. But I, I feel, I feel for, I feel for people who are closer to, I guess, a woman or feminine proximity than me, because it's not fair that they have to carry that weight. And to some degree, us queer men also carry some more of that weight than our heterosexuals and cis counterparts because we're in still in proximity towards them but i will never carry the weight that a trans black woman has to carry 
Yeah. And it, it literally feels like they're being forced to rebuild our whole world from bottom to top with the least amount of resources. Mm-hmm. And then we get mad that they can't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we don't do anything to change it. Yeah, well, we have to end it here. Um, but I just want to say, Josh, since it's Pride Month, I want to say that you, I love you. You're one of my best gay friends ever. I love you too, Erin, and you're my best gay friend also. Oh, thank you. So, because it's Pride Month, are we going to fuck? Why would you ask this on Prime National Podcast? <laughs> I need you to answer this only podcast. I want people to hear you reject me. Look, guys, we discovered a kink. <laughs> Public rejection. I'll give him what he wants. No, Aaron. I will. No, not. see, no, when you say it like that, it makes it seem as if I actually wanted you to reject me. So, no, that is, first of all, that's not my kink. I don't have a kink of public projection. Um, <laughs> so so, so now that we, uh, now that the audience knows that, are we going to fuck for pride, Josh? <laughs> I have to get in the mood for it. <laughs> oh, I can put you in the mood. Okay, Aaron. Uh, do you dot my skills? Aaron, I've yet to see them. Anyway, we will see you. I'm not going to stay next weekend because next we usually record on Saturdays. Um, we're recording on a Sunday today because we always for, for some reason we always forget that we need to record on Saturday. Um, but next Saturday, um, I will be attending a party event um, and later getting drunk that night. So I don't I don't know if. I might, I might be in Montevallo Friday. Um, I'll probably be there. S- oh, sorry, probably be there Sunday. I just want to maybe probably record Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll see you whenever you the next podcast come out. Bye. Bye.